What's up, everybody? I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney, fierce litigator, and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Clone Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. Welcome, everybody, to episode 28 of the Tilted Lawyer podcast. I had to pause there because I forgot to hit record, uh, but I have since oh. rectified that situation. And um, I'm recording for the podcast. This is the live podcast. And um, we are here on a very special day um, of the Tilted Lawyer broadcast. Uh, today, uh, there is, give me one second. Come on in. Come in. Come in. Come in. Sit. Make yourself some space. Melissa is like creeping into the door and peeking in. And um, as I'm trying to give my introduction, uh, but Alex Murdoch took the stand today. We've been following this trial for the last three days and well, three, three weeks. And uh, we were all wondering whether or not he was going to actually testify. And I had said last week and Eliana, you kind of said the same thing mm-hmm. that it would be suicide for him to do such a thing. But then we were also kind of going through a lot of the evidence and we figured out that, I mean, they're, you know, I mean, what else is he going to do? He's got Mm -hmm. his timeline of events. His defense team had promised very different things uh, than what was actually uh, presented at trial in terms of the timeline about whether or not they were going to have uh, be able to prove his timeline. And it was all just shred to shit with seven different witnesses placing his voice on a video that was taken on Paul's phone between 8.44 and 8.50 p.m. And, um, well, we were wondering how they are going to overcome that. Well, the way that they've decided to do it is, you know what, screw it, let's put Alex on the stand. And so he took the stand this morning. And um, I haven't had an opportunity to review the entire um examination of Mr. Murdoch, but I did listen to the direct examination. And what do you think that he said, Eliana? Well, I did peek into an article, so I kind of know what he said pretty much that he, yes, he stole money. Yes, he lied, but he didn't murder. Well, here's the thing. Remember we were talking about the the video and how we were Mm -hmm. going to, how he was going to fix that. So one of the first things they said within the first five minutes was, Yeah, I lied. I lied to the sled team. What do you want from me? I lied to the (laughs) cops. I didn't trust sled. He said that I I was on opiates. I was was high on drugs. I couldn't logically think at the time. I deceived people, Mm -hmm. and I kept lying to them because I lied once, and so I kept on lying. And so, yes, I'm a liar, and I'm sorry about that. This is within, like, the first 10 minutes of his direct examination with his own attorneys, which is a strategy, (laughs) I guess. I mean, you know, I mean, when your client gets caught lying about stuff you gotta you, you have to have something to say and that's what he said um on the other hand i mean you are uh risking it well i mean you're not risking anything you are admitting that you're a liar and you're risk what you're risking is whether or not the jury's going to ever believe anything you have to say so at the very outset he says yeah i'm a liar i'm a drug addict i misled sled yes i was at the kennels and no i wasn't being truthful at the beginning we're going to listen to some excerpts of the testimony 
I was most curious about how the direct examination was going to go because imagine you're the prosecutor and imagine, and you keep thinking that, gosh, if only he would testify, imagine the cross-examination of that guy and how bad it would look on Alex. But you're the prosecutor and you have to give that examination. Where do you even begin? You know you can't screw it up. You know you can't screw it up. Um, but they have to put out something. And so there's this whole theater. I'll, I'll tell you what. There is very few scenarios in life that is more compelling than when a defendant is uh, standing trial for his life and he gets up on the stand to testify and he gets the, the prosecution gets the op- the opportunity to cross-examine him. Well, that's what we had today. And so all of the evidence as the defense has started putting on their case has been geared towards, oh, the sled team did such a terrible job with their investigation, um, which they did, by the way. Uh, matter of fact, um, Alex's former law partner uh, that he had known for years testified that as SLED was wrapping up their investigation, he had gone down to the scene because Alex had asked him to be there. And of course he was there because Alex was his lifelong friend and he was very familiar with the family. He was familiar with Paul and Maggie and all of those things. And he's kind of meandering around the kennels and he sees a golf ball sized piece of skull that used to belong to Paul Murdoch laying on the floor and he goes to alert the sled team about it. And um, they said, Oh no, no, we got everything we need. And he's like, are you sure? Because I'm looking at a piece of skull right here, literally. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's not a good look for sled. And that guy was credible as, um, as, as, as anybody else that's testified in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, he said a lot of things among the, uh, the stuff he said about sled. Uh, but one of the things he said a lot of stuff, Key points to take away from that guy. He said that Alex had changed his story multiple times after the murders had occurred, um, specifically. He said that Alex, he obviously didn't know who he was. You know, I I had no idea he was committing all of this financial fraud. He was a defense witness, but he was not necessarily scoring a whole lot of points for the defense team other than to say that sled really bad at their job, did a really bad investigation, really bad cleanup of the crime scene. Ileana's joining us um, telephonically. For those of you that are wondering where she's at on camera, she's not here uh, because she has, um, she didn't want to drive in the rain and the snow, believe it or not. We are here yeah. in the Inland Empire, and this morning, I kid you not, my lawn was covered with snow. My car was covered with snow. It reminded me of when I used to have to dig my car out of the snow when I was living in the Midwest in Columbus, Ohio. And, um, you know, interesting weather we're having. I love it, by the way. I love this kind of weather. I love it. But Ileana wanted, she didn't want to drive to Tilted Lawyer Podcast <laughs> Studios. So I said, fine, call in. And you could just be like a guest caller. And so she's here. Melissa is here, by the way. She's on the microphone somewhere. She's not. She doesn't have the mic in front of her face. So even if she had something to say, you wouldn't be able to hear. She's pointing at it like I could. Yeah, I see. There's a microphone. There it is. And no, it's not in front of your face. So if you had something to say, nobody would know. Um, but yeah, Melissa's here on the couch, um, and Eliana's in the comfort of her home. And uh, lucky her. And I am at, uh, um, well, ground zero of the Tilted Lawyer Podcast Studios. But yeah, so Alex Murdoch. 
Um, and again, this is episode 28. This is our full live broadcast. Um, it's been one hell of a week. Um, I just got out of a trial. I know, Eliana, you had yourself a trial yesterday. I'm not going to ask oh, you about yeah. what happened to that trial live on the air, <laughs> um, other than a state that we're real practicing attorneys with actual cases. Um, personally, I just want to say for the record, um, for my case, I kicked ass yesterday. It was, um, Good. I, I give myself an A. Not an A plus, I'll give myself an A. It doesn't matter what I give myself. The, the judge made their decision and we did all right. So um, I, I'd imagine that you did the same uh, just because I know that you're a really good attorney as well. Um, Gurley is, uh, there's somebody named Gurley. Uh, holy cow, unless Creighton has an epiphany overnight and gets off, the, oh yeah, on the cross-exam, Liana, remember we are talking about the uh, financial crimes and how they were going a little bit too deep into the financial crimes that happened again today. So it, it gets back to this thing. So golden opportunity, the prosecution, once in a lifetime cross-examination, you get to cross-examine the defendant in this nationally renowned murder trial. Um, and you have one shot at this thing. And what are you going to focus on? I could think of five things that I would focus on before the finances. Could you? I know I'm putting you on the spot. I know I'm doing that. And I did it on purpose. Yeah. And I'm not apologetic about it. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, wait, what was the question again? So um, focus on five things. But what, were five, what are five things that you would focus on before getting to the financial stuff with the opportunity to cross-examine Alex Murdoch? Oh, okay. Well, of course, um, I guess the clothing um, yeah, that's a big one, right? Explain the clothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what else? What was the other thing? There's, I mean, there's all these incongruences that, or weird things that don't really have an explanation. And he pretty much just gave an explanation for um, the fact that he was there. And he said he wasn't because of the video. But other than that, what else has he explained um, from all the other things that don't make sense? Um, what was... There was something else. No, because this is, this is not the guy that bought the... So here's my... Okay, so here's my points, right? <laughs> you, we're on the same... We're of the same mind. But number one, he's mm -hmm. got to find some kind of explanation for the kennels. And he gave yep. an explanation for the kennels to his defense attorney. You know what his kennels was? Or his kennels was? You know what his explanation was? Yeah, I lied about it. I'm a liar. What do you want from me? I was on opiates. I was under the influence. Um, and yes, I lied. Mm -hmm. Because I could not form any form of um, sensible logic, and that was my that was his explanation. All right. Next question. He goes on his direct exam. On direct exam, he reiterates the point, the same points that he made in his nine one one calls, which is he tried to turn over Paul. He was fiddling with Paul's cell phone. Um, he tried to check for a pulse on Maggie, the bloodied bodies that were just slain in cold blood with uh, two. Uh, highly dangerous, capable um, firearms, one that exploded the head of his 19-year-old son, Paul, um, and his wife, Maggie. He's touching all over these bodies and yet not an ounce of blood, not an ounce of blood. What's the explanation for that, sir, right? So there's point. There's two points. Number three, uh, the timeline. The timeline, what happened to his clothes that you were mentioning, right? Uh, the clothes that you were wearing when you were messing around with the sunflowers. You know, you're fiddling around with this tree and it shows you're wearing a, a green polo shirt and some beige pants. You know, what about those? Um, what would be the fourth thing? 
Uh, the fourth thing would be um, I would question him about, well, I guess we get into the timeline. That all kind of, all right, I said five. I don't have five in mind. I'm just saying, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. Did he explain the witnesses, like the the allegation that he was trying to bribe the care oh, of his mom? Oh, well, he didn't on direct exam. I don't know if if, if okay. they if they got to that on cross exam or not. We're going to go over some of the highlights, and I'm looking at some of the highlights, and specifically, this is what they asked him about. Um, number one, he says he lies. He, he lied. Um, one of the other things that came out on direct exam was that uh, when he found the bodies, the state that they're in, and he goes on to say, so here's the thing, three weeks of trial, and you kind of, you're sitting there, you're hearing all of the testimony, and you know when you've been um, with your defense team for the entire time, you know what the weaknesses is are on your case. Mm-hmm. There's been this whole stuff about whether or not that one video was it I did him so bad or they did him so bad? Potentially a, a possible confession on his part. Um, he kept on repeating over and over and over again, almost unprompted, the phrase so bad. As in it was so bad. When I got there, it was so bad. As if to uh, reiterate to the juror's mind that, you know, um, that's just a thing that he says. And it wasn't a confession. He didn't say I did them so bad. He just so bad is just something that he says. Um, which to me, it doesn't matter if he said, it doesn't matter what he said. It's like the weakest part of evidence of, of the prosecution's case. He's got to explain his yeah. timeline and his explanation from it, his explanation for being there at the kennels when he said he wasn't at the kennels, when his defense attorney said he wasn't at the kennels was, well, I lied. So what now? Yeah, I lied. I lied. I lied. I'm a liar. I was on drugs. Don't blame me. That, that was his explanation. So he goes on to talk about the so bad thing. There was, um, he did talk about, we're going to listen to some of the testimony because he did, he did speak a little bit about the clothes that he was wearing when he was fiddling with that tree on the Snapchat video with Paul where he's wearing, it wasn't a green polo shirt. It was a blue polo shirt and those beige pants. Nobody's ever found those clothes again. So he, he spoke a little bit about that. Um, he did talk a little bit about his, the family dynamics. He talked about his I- addiction to oxycodone. Um, he talked about Cousin Eddie. Remember Cousin Eddie, the guy that he oh, yeah. um, <laughs> hired to shoot him in the face to make it look like a suicide so Buster could collect $11 million? Um, at the very outset of his direct examination, one of the very first questions out of the defense attorney's mouth, uh, was, did you kill Paul? Did you kill Maggie? And like everybody was expecting, well, of course I did. Of course he's not going to say oh, that. He said, no, I did not. No, I did not. Of course that was going to be the answer, but they had to get it out. So they got it out. Of, they got it out at the very outset, which I guess is fair. Um, he kept on referring to Paul Murdoch as a Paul Paul, I guess to kind of generate some kind of uh, family sympathy that he had some affection for Paul and he had this nickname. And I will say this, one thing that Alex did very well on the stand this morning going into the afternoon is that he finally learned how to cry. Oh. (laughs) He finally learned how to cry out of all... I had your I had your mic off, Melissa. What were you, what were you saying? I had Ileana same reaction. Oh, yeah, no. Of of all the times that he um, 
of all of the times that he had pretended to cry when he's being interrogated by the police and when, you know, he's in various times during the trial when he was pretending to cry, bobbing his head up and down and night, he was doing this fake mime crying. Um, not a single tear was shed in all of those attempts. Yet this morning, when he gets to describing his son, there was, you could visibly see there was tears falling off of his face. So he's perfected the art of now he's being able, he's able to associate tears to the actions. And, you know, I imagine that that probably had an effect on the jury as they were watching it. Um, so he learned how to do that. Um, but they did get into some of the financial stuff with the prosecutor and, um, the prosecutor was doubling down and Alex snapped at him when they were talking about the financial stuff. And we're going to go over some of that. Um, the only thing Creighton has proven. So this is from, uh, what was her name? Ger, Gerlery. Gerlery. It's, it's spelled G I R L R Y. She says that the only thing Creighton has proven in my very unprofessional opinion, and that's okay. Um, is he's a terrible human. Yeah. A lying liar who lies, yeah. But he hasn't proven he's a lying liar who murders while lying. Yeah, one thing, and that's kind of the worry that we had when they were bringing up all this financial evidence. Like, they're wasting so much time rather than keeping this super simple, which was, you know, my idea was my whole theory of the case is if we prove to you that he was at the kennels because he specifically said he wasn't, then that means that he's a liar. You don't have another reasonable explanation if you believe that that is his voice on the on the videotape, then he's guilty. There is no reasonable doubt to be had. He's a guilty man. And um, Gory says, a girl named, oh, a girl named Ryan. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, uh, keep it simple. You know, you got two dead bodies. He was there minutes prior to the murders taking place. We got uh, evidence of him trying to tamper with the witnesses that were supposed to support his alibi. He was tampering with the with the witnesses specifically to bolster his alibi. He he damn near bribed uh, the mother's caregiver um, in offering to pay for her wedding. He tried to convince Blanca uh, that uh, she remembered clothes that she specifically did not remember him wearing. She remembered the correct clothes. Um, you have all of this other evidence, um, and you know, so. It, apart from all of that, what what do you have? If 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 you are Alex Murdoch, you know where do you take that? And his explanation is, well, I'm a liar. So, what has the prosecution proved? If he's now giving them the fact, yeah, I'm a lying, I'm, I'm lying. My worry with this whole thing, watching the testimony, was that the evidence, or not the evidence, but the optics of him actually crying on the stand and trying to humanize his son and calling him Papa, which is now trending on Twitter, by the way. Um, that nickname, um, that it would have the effect of painting him as, yeah, he's an evil man. He stole millions of dollars. He did terrible things. Um, the Satterfield lady, um, the housekeeper that used to live in his house died, and then he tried to steal the settlement money that was supposed to go to her son. Her son got up and testified all of that. He's a terrible person, a terrible human being. You have one of his best friends talking about, I guess I really didn't know who Paul was. And the prosecution, I thought, with that witness, did a really good job of saying that, yeah, so you really didn't know who he was, right? Because he, he's a liar and he's manipulative uh, and, and you believe what he wants you to believe, right? And so now we get here to Alex and Alex has done a really good job, at least in the morning, of presenting himself as a human being. And you could kind of see his theory like... Uh, 
there's this, now the jury doesn't get to see this, but there is a whole documentary that came out about Paul and the boat case um, with uh, Mallory, the teenage girl that died in that accident. Did you get a chance to watch that on the, uh, it debuted yesterday. Is it so. the one on Netflix? Yeah, it literally just debuted last night. Yeah, I saw like a, last week they were uh, announcing it, that it was coming soon, but I didn't know it released already. So I need to watch that. It's on, but you know, they, they focused the first part of it. I've only watched it's, it's I've watched part one of three. Um, but the first part of it was specifically geared towards the details surrounding the Paul case. And it paints a very different picture of Paul as um, the black sheep of the family. Um, you know, not as accomplished as Buster, not necessarily going to law school. He had violent tendencies. He had a girlfriend that he was uh, committing acts of domestic violence against. And, you know, she gets up there to talk about it. he was uh, he had an alcohol problem. He became a very different person while he was on alcohol. And uh, he, his actions led up to the death of the young Mallory. And that's what part one focused on. And then I'm, I don't know what part two and three is about. I haven't watched it yet. I don't have that kind of time. Um, but they just point, <laughs> they painted this, uh, this portrait of him, which is kind of what the prosecution has been trying to get at at the whole time. You know, they talked a lot about the boat case. Now, the defense's take on the boat case is that Alex had a lot of enemies. Um, Paul had a lot of enemies, specifically from the boat case. And if you watch part one of the Alex Murdoch documentary from last night, you feel it. Um, they were pissed at Paul. And um, I wonder, you know, I mean, you, there, there's literally surveillance footage of him going into a bar and he's driving this boat and they crash into this underpass and a bridge and, you know, everybody's safe except for Mallory, this 19-year-old girl, and um, you could feel there was palpable anger, you know, built up against Paul. And then there's been testimony in this case about um, him being threatened in public, on social media, specifically because of the boat case, not to mention the money that was uh, the, the Murdoch estate would have been liable for in the civil case. I think it was something in excess of $10 million that was not going to be covered by insurance, because that insurance money was all used in the Satterfield case. So there was no umbrella insurance policy to speak of with respect to that. Um, and the prosecution was trying to, to make the point subtly that Buster was kind of the prized son of the Murdoch family. He was in law school and all this kind of stuff. And there's been all, there's been a lot of stuff that's come out of been about Buster, but specifically about Paul. And I, I'll, maybe I'll get into some of it later, but, there was, um, I'll tell you what, I don't know what's going on down there in South Carolina with the, Mardo with the Murdochs. I'm just going to say that there's been five different individuals that have passed away under mysterious circumstances, all related to the Murdoch family. One of them is purported to be the ex-boyfriend of Buster Murdoch, oh. who was murdered for whatever reason, um, and I don't know too much about those allegations, so I don't want to get too deep into it, but it was literally on Law and Crime. There was this, this interview about who was this young man that passed away that was the friend of uh, Buster Murdoch, and there was speculation that it was his boyfriend. And um, he died because he knew too much, and so he was murdered, and uh, they it was covered up and swept under the rug, and it, it all led to this mysterious aura that the Murdoch family held over the state of South Carolina. 
And uh, this crime in particular is, is, you know, not whole, well, it is different because Alex is the one who is alleged to have committed the murders, but it just falls into this narrative of mysterious deaths uh, related to the Murdoch family, you know, that are, are not common. And so what is up with these people? At any rate, mm-hmm. Paul um, had a lot of enemies. The prosecution did a really good job for the defense in exposing all of the multitude of possible other enemies that the Murdochs might have had, which gives rise to what? Reasonable doubt as to who may have committed the murders if it wasn't Alex. Now, circumstantially, we have a pretty strong case. And what is our case? The clothes that Alex was seen wearing prior to the murders, that green polo shirt, those beige pants, nowhere to be found, mysteriously missing. The guns used to commit the murders, tied together by the type of ammunition found on the property, that was used in the same uh, mode and manner as the guns in, in the guns that the family owned, never recovered. Those guns are missing, even though the Murdochs own those specific types of guns, but those would have been the murder weapons. They never found any blood on Murdoch's person, despite the fact that he checked for a pulse. He was turning over the bodies, went back and forth, and was trying to um, examine, you know, and all of these things. Uh, and Blanca goes in to testify that, hey, they don't normally do it. They don't normally do it, but on that particular day, they, they decided to clean up. And uh, right before I had, had left, you know, he, she goes on to say that he pulled a clean white shirt off of the top of the stack and knocked over some clothes. I don't know where his other clothes went, but he pulled a clean white shirt, and that's what he was interrogated in, right? Um, you have him trying to manipulate witnesses to believing um, in an alibi that he created that was inconsistent with their actual memory. And so you have this very strong circumstantial case. The mistake that the prosecution has made that I'm fearful of at this point is they've created so much room for reasonable doubt and possible other enemies mm-hmm. of the Murdochs that it's plausible that one of the victims of these financial crimes or somebody from the boat murders uh, may have been the perpetrator. Does that make sense? Not to me. Not to me. Because if you're going to commit the murders, why wouldn't you bring your own guns? Why would you use or bank on the fact that you're going to somehow get access to the Murdoch's guns to commit the murders? That doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't fly in the fact that Alex is there in the kennels minutes before everybody was committed. And if you're trying to commit the murders from the outside, I'd imagine you've conducted some form of surveillance. And if, uh, you know, Paul or Alex is the target of your murders, you're, you're probably going to go after all of them. I don't know. But aside from all of it, there's absolutely no evidence of any other individual, not even the groundskeeper, that anybody else's DNA other than the three involved in the incident was recovered at the scene. Not a shred of evidence. All we have is mundane uh, retrograde speculation from the defense team that is their job for them to raise. And so you don't have much of anything. And so, I don't know. But now that's the prosecution's case. We know what their deficiencies were, focusing too much on the finances. Now you get Alex on the stand today. 
and he gets the chance to actually produce tears. He's learned how to do it after, you know, a few weeks of trying so hard to produce a single tear. I mean, really, he's been at it since 2021. Um, but yeah, today I, I saw a visible tear on his, uh, on his face, actually fall down his cheek. Um, he's playing the part of a, an aggrieved father who lost his wife and his son. And he's displaying all of the correct emotions that you would expect of one who was grieving the loss of their family members. And so if there was any room for reasonable doubt whatsoever on the basis of what I just explained, even if the chance is small and we went over, what, what is the percentage gradient that you would attribute to reasonable doubt? Is it 25%? Is it 10%? Let's say it's 2%. Maybe there's a 2% chance it was some silent assassin <clears throat> that was trying to avenge the death of Mallory or uh, avenge the financial losses of one of the financial victims. Who knows? But it is all the more plausible when you see Alex playing the emotional part of the aggrieved father. And so my concern is the jury's going to fall for it. And the prosecution has handed reasonable doubt to the defense team by focusing so much on the financial victims in the case. What do you think, Eliana? I don't know. I mean, in the jury, I don't know if after all the evidence that has been uh, presented and all the witnesses and the testimony, just by hearing him or seeing him shed a little tear and saying I'm a liar, I don't know if that's going to be enough for them to kind of like flip the coin, I guess, and believe him. Um or be enough for that reasonable doubt. I mean, at the end of the day, he did say that he was a, law, uh, a liar. And is he lying now? <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, Eliana, let me paint for you a picture. Um, on that jury, no doubt, no doubt, there is uh, your grandma or Aunt Sally. And she's yeah. 68, 70 years old. She's Catholic or Christian or, you know... <laughs> Southern Baptist, and she has all the uh, absolute heart of pure gold. And every time she sees somebody cry, she feels the utmost infinite amounts of empathy for whoever it is that's crying. And in her little heart of hearts, she couldn't imagine how a father that would cry that much for their son could possibly do such a thing. And that's all you need. That's enough for a hung jury. That's enough for an acquittal, maybe. If I just Sally hope there's not one of those on, on Sully's in, in the jury. They are on every jury. Them. There's on every jury. More often than not, they get bullied into uh, agreeing with the pact. Because how often? Because yes, Aunt Sally's not going to stand up to eleven others. But mm-hmm. all it takes is exactly. one or two Aunt Sally's, and um, that's room for a reasonable doubt. Uh, Mari M says, "Was Buster the intended recipient?" Uh, yes. Buster was the intended recipient of the insurance money. It was a $12 million insurance fraud scheme, um, all intended, the proceeds of which, to go directly to Buster, um, not Paul. So um, in terms of reasonable doubt, there's room for it. If it, with, a, with a good enough performance, um, Alex may have turned the tide of the trial here. Let's, let's take a look at some of uh, the footage. I wanted to go over, and I want you to give me your thoughts Obviously, you can't follow along video-wise, but I have. Um, 
I'm going to pull up some clips, just the highlights, just the highlights. Um, all right. So the first clip I'm going to play is when they ask him outright, Alex, did you kill your wife? Did you kill your son? Do you remember how when we listened to that interrogation video of when the police and the cameras were off and, you know, there was no jury there. It was just interrogator and Alex and his attorney. You remember how he answered that question? Do you remember how robotic and deliberate it sounded um, and inauthentic? Well, now he's being asked the same question under the watchful eyes of America and really the world because this case has become world-renowned at this point. And uh, let's compare and contrast his answer from back then to now. Just a short clip. Just a short clip. Um, Give me one second. All right, let's watch it. Thank you, Your Honor. Do we want to hear that? The defendant, Richard Alexander Murdoch, wishes to take the stand. I'm Alec Murdoch, M-U-R-D-A-U-G-H. Good morning. gun or any gun like it and shoot your son Paul in the chest in the feed room at your property off Moselle Road? No, I did not. Mr. Murdoch, did you take this gun or any gun like it and blow your son's brains out on June 7th or any day or any time? No, I did not. Mr. Murdoch, Take a 300 blackout such as this and fire it into your wife Maggie's leg, torso, or any part of her body. No, I did not. Did you shoot a 300 blackout into her head, causing her death? Mr. Griffin, I didn't shoot my wife or my son anytime, ever. Now, he stood in the mirror early this morning, and he rehearsed that specific line. Yes. 30 to 40 to 50 times. Um, And he got it, you know, camera ready. And he delivered the lines the way he intended to. Um, It wasn't a whole lot different than how he delivered it in interrogation uh, with the investigator. But I don't know. Is it case closed? Should we just believe him? He he said he didn't do it. Should we just go home? (laughs) Or should we continue? I, I think there's more to it. I think there's more to it. Um, but let's uh, let's uh, continue. He goes on. Now, this is shortly after the um, where he admits to being a liar. Well, no, we're going on to that clip. This is shortly after he this. Then, by the way, I like his defense attorney's style with that with that um, with the way that he posed those questions. Did you take this gun or anything like it and blow your son's head off? No, sir, I did not. Did you take this AR-15 or any gun like it? And that was that was good. I liked his tone. I liked uh, I liked the uh, performance, um, and uh, I liked uh, Alex's response, even if it was rehearsed. And that little throwaway line, you know, I did not shoot my, you know, whatever he said. 
it was all really good performance. Now, the next order of business is explain yourself. Explain how we found your voice on that video. And this is what he had to say. Let's get into it. Uh-oh, what did I do? There we go. Again, Paul, were murdered. It is. Were you, in fact, at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. on the night Maggie and Paul were murdered? I was. Did you lie to Sled Agent Owen and Deputy Laura Rutland on the night of June 7th and told them that you stayed at the house after dinner? I did lie to them. Did you lie to Agent Owen and Agent Croft on the follow-up interview on June 10th that the last time you saw Maggie and Paul was at dinner? I did lie to them. And in the interview of August 11th, did you tell Agent Owen and Agent Crawl, did you lie to them t by telling them that you were not down at the kennels on that night? Yes. Alec, why did you lie to Agent Owen, Agent Croft, and Deputy Rutland about the last time you saw Maggie and Paul? As my addiction evolved over time, I would get in these situations or circumstances where I would get paranoid thinking. Uh, and it, it could be anything that, that triggered it. It might be a look somebody gave me. It might be a reaction somebody had to something I did. Um, it might be a policeman following me in, in a car. Um, that night, June 7th, after finding... Mags and Paul, 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 don't talk to anybody without Danny with you. All my partners were just repeatedly telling me that. I had a deputy sheriff taking gunshot tests from my hands. I'm sitting in a police car with David Owen asking me about my relationship with my wife and my son, and all those things coupled together after finding them, coupled with my distrust for SLED, caused me to have paranoid thoughts. Normally, when these paranoid thoughts would hit me, I could take a deep breath real quick and just think about it, reason my way through it, and just get past it really quickly. On June the 7th, I wasn't thinking clearly. I don't think I was capable of reason. And I lied about being down there. And I'm so sorry that I did. I'm sorry to my son, Buster. I'm sorry to Grandma and Papa T. I'm sorry to both of our families. Most of all, I'm sorry to Mags 
And Paul thought, I would never intentionally do anything to hurt either one of them. Ever. Ever. All right, so a couple of things with that. Um, Eliana, would you have objected in the middle of his narrative there? Maybe. Depends. What's the risk? I mean, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like, sometimes I just let them, <laughs> because there's no risk. I mean, it's just put in a show. Well, yeah, exactly. Melissa, you are more likely a juror than myself or Ileana on this case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you believe this guy? Well, how do you, what do you think of that narrative that he just spouted off? I'd say 50-50 if you ask me. All right. So 50% he might be telling the truth, 50%. Okay. So mm-hmm. his explanation, okay, my bullshit meter is off the roof. So he said, I was not capable I was not capable of having good sense on the night of the incident. Oh, no, not because of that. Tears tend to convince a lot of people, and they tend to, like, scar a something. Oh. So that's when people are like, you know what, maybe. Eliana, when you see tears, does that, does, 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 does that win you over? No. Okay, you guys <laughs> are on a contest on this. We've but I'm, a th- I'm an attorney. I exactly. As soon as I see, as soon as I see tears, I go in for the kill. It's like, okay, yeah. I got this one. I, yeah, that, I'm not impressed by your tears. In three years, maybe I'll be you guys as well. I was not impressed by Alex's tears. I was listening to what he said, and what he said was a line of bullshit about a mile mm-hmm. long, and I was incapable of having good sense or something to that effect that he said, um, yeah, I don't believe you, sir. And that's not a good explanation. Just say you lied. You lied because he didn't want to get caught. That's what I'm hearing in my head. His internal soliloquy, his little monologue that he wants to give for the jury. I'm not impressed. But I'll tell you what, little Aunt Burgett over there sitting on in jury seat 11, and I don't know if that's an accurate. I don't know who's on the jury. I'm just saying but whoever is on the jury that may be convinced by those tears is what I'm worried about, you know, because mm-hmm. people... They they get uh they react to human displays of emotion because we are human, mm-hmm. and it creates mm-hmm. certain triggers. Um, Kane Cardova says uh, that Alex is innocent. Maybe. You see, that's what I'm. That's what I mean when I say the tears. Because I'm a civilian person as of now. You guys are attorneys. You've had way more experience on this than me or anybody sitting in the jury. So you see tears. You're like, please, come on. Yeah, I don't. Um, <sighs> it's it's so hard. Um, even with my kids, <laughs> as soon as they start crying, it's like, okay, you guys are bullshitting me right now. You guys can go sit and cry by yourselves. <laughs> my wife is a little more, um, she's, a, she's a little more sympathetic. Uh, well, it depends. You can tell the difference between the cries. Like, uh, there, there's different cries if you have small children. You learn the to decipher between the two. Um, Alex did an amazing job on the stand. I don't disagree with that, Kane. Uh, not one bit. He performed he performed yeah. really the question is uh, you gotta uh, you have to understand usually um in your trials you don't like mm-hmm. what's bothering me about this trial is both buster and a lot of the witnesses in this case and i don't know how what the percentage of it is but a lot of them were sitting in the courtroom for the entire 
entirety of the testimony. So Alex yeah. is already aware of all the weaknesses in his case, and he knows yes. what he needs to address, and he's very clearly evidenced by this little five-minute clip, um, very clearly deciphered what he needs to say and how he's going to yeah. frame this, and he's, he's gone about it um, over with his defense attorney. And I'll, I guarantee you that his defense team did not want him on the stand. I guarantee you that this was something that Alex wanted to do because he probably felt like he was losing the case. There's also some legal sense to it because, because of the financial evidence that maybe perhaps shouldn't have got in because a lot of it was irrelevant because they're trying to go for motive evidence and it was tangentially tied to the motive. Possibly. Mm -hmm. Was it more prejudicial than probative? Maybe that's going to be um, an appealable issue. Even more so if, the defendant feels that because of that prejudicial evidence that he has to get on the stand because of how damaging the financial stuff was. And he would have never gone on the stand, but for that evidence was let in. That's one way to approach an appeal in this case, but more practically, um, Alex is over here. He's performing and he's clearly rehearsed his lines and you could kind of, mm -hmm. I've, I've got a good read on Alex Murdoch at this point. And I've noticed Whenever he's going in, I'm swaying in my chair. I got to stop that. I'm going to give people uh, seizures. <laughs> Whenever he's going into these long narratives, he does this thing where he's like starts smacking on his lips or like sucking on the lodgings or whatever he's doing. And he makes these very deliberate mouth noises, sounds, um, actions. Whenever he's going, into, whenever he's telling us a story, which I've now interpreted telling us a line of bullshit. I'll tell you what. I don't trust Alex personally, but has prosecution opened the door for reasonable doubt in this case? Yes. And all he had to do, Alex, is give a good performance today. And we're, we're kind of going through whether or not Kane Cordova says, uh, oh, the infamous pets and pans were put in the fridge by his friends. I think he had to take the Stanford. Yeah, I feel that. Um, I don't have a problem with my clients taking the stand, honestly. I really don't, because if you don't, you're not supposed to let it affect or prejudice your decision on guilt or innocence, but it does. Mm -hmm. it, it does. People would expect if you're innocent, get up there and you start telling the truth and uh, tell your side of the story. They want to hear from you. They want to know whether or not you're credible or not. Um, I will say that Alex's performance um, this morning was pretty good, but we're going to get into some of the cross-exam stuff and maybe talk about uh whether or not the, the prosecution screwed up the cross. Um, anyway, so he gets up there. He's blaming, he blames his uh, addiction for the reason why. He continued lying after that night. He felt like he had to, oh, this is a further explanation. He continued lying that night, and he goes on to say, he goes on to quote, quote poetry. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we something to deceive. I forget who wrote that. It was something like uh I forget, but it's from like the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Did you not? But once I lied, I continued to lie. Yes, sir. Why? You know, oh, what a tangled web we weave. But once I told <laughs> a lie, then I told my family, I, I had to keep lying.
Alex, tell the jury what happened on the evening of June 7th, starting when you met with Paul. I'd been at work that day, uh, a fairly normal day. Um, you mean start in the morning? or? Sure, start in the morning. Um, it was just a regular morning. Maggie was leaving to go out of town. Um, she was she was going to a doctor's appointment, and while he's getting into some of the stuff, he just reiterates some of his timeline. That's not really all that, you know. Mm -hmm. Mr. Murdoch, is that you? On the um, the next bit, he goes on to talk about um, when he discovers the bodies of his wife and his son. And this, I thought, was one of his more compelling bits of testimony on direct examination. I thought he did a really uh, good job. You get, I mean, I haven't had any sympathy whatsoever for Mr. Murdoch in this case. Uh, for the entirety of the trial, I mean, really for since 2021, he just comes off to me as not a credible guy, as a manipulator, as a liar. And uh, this was the first time where I've ever heard him run into a narrative where I actually believe uh, the emotion that's coming out of the words that he's intending. Uh, but let's take a listen. This is upon him discovering the dead bodies of his wife and son. I know I did those two things and, and, and looked in those two places and they weren't there. And so, you know, I knew they'd been at the kennels and I assumed they were still up there. So what'd you do? I went to the kennels. I may have tried to call them. In fact, I probably did try to call them. We, I, I would think I called them. Um, but as I sit here right now, I'm not positive, but I would think I did. would think I tried to call them to see. And now, like, when you, did you drive down to the kennels in your suburban? I did. What'd you see? I saw what y'all have seen pictures of. You see that too? Oh, well, you can't see the video, can you? No, but I can hear him. <laughs> I can kind of tell. Well, there was tears that just rolled off of his face. Did he clean them? No, they fell onto his lap, it looks like. Of course, more dramatic. Exactly.
Did you see them on the ground when you're pulling up in your Suburban? I did. And what did you do when you came to a stop, Alec? I think I jumped out of my car. I'm not exactly sure what I did, but no, I got out of my car. I know I ran back to my car, called 911. I was on, I called 911. I was on the phone with 911, and I was trying to tend to Paul Paul. I was trying to tend to Maggie. And I just went back and forth between them. Were you um, going to Paul and Maggie while you were on the phone with the um, 911 operators? Yes. Okay. Yes. In a little bit, I'm going to play the 911 tape, but I just want to ask you, and, and you've told law enforcement that has been played here in the court, um, did you, what did you do when you went up to Paul at some point in time? In Paul. Paul was so, he was so bad. At some point, I know, I, I mean, I know I tried to check him for a pulse. Um, I know I tried to turn him over. When you say you tried to turn him over, what, why were you trying to turn him over? I don't know. I want you to notice that there's been a lot of um, stuff made up about the fact that he was filming with Paul's phone when he discovered it on his person, on his dead body. And the prosecution was using it as evidence that he tried to manipulate Paul's phone in some kind of a way. And so the only reason why he's going into this bit of testimony is because he's literally addressing one of the defense, one of the questions the defense believes um, is in the juror's mind, which is why you hear him talking about, you know, this mundane testimony about the cell phone. I don't know. I don't know why I tried to turn him over. Me and my boys laying face down. And he's done the way he's done. His head was the way his head was. I could see his, could see his brain laying on the sidewalk. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I... Try to turn him over. Try to grab him by the belt loop. He'll try to turn him over. <clears throat> and when I did, his phone popped out. Was, I mean, his phone popped out. And I just picked it up and I put it right back there. Do you have any idea how it popped out? I mean, I know it came out of his pocket when I pulled on his belt loop. When I, when I pulled him to, to turn him over, and it just popped out. And I mean, it popped right beside him. It sat right beside him. Were you, were you able to turn Paul at all? I mean, I, I, I didn't. 
one of the files that they looked at, I didn't turn them over then. What what side of the um, what side of Paul were you when you were doing this? I was on um, I was on the side that was away from I was on the side that was away from where my car was. Okay. Yeah. What'd you do with the phone? I put it back on Papa. Do you know if you put it, you know which way it was pointing, upside down, downside, anyway? Couldn't tell you anything about it. I know his phone popped out. I picked it up and I put it back on him. Did you see any messages on Paul's phone? No. Maggie. Did. Did you touch her? I did. Where where did you touch Maggie? I think I touched her down just around like I don't know. I don't know. If you if you ask me exactly, I, I think I touched her down around her waist, but I don't know. What, what is the obvious question based on what he just said? What's the obvious cross-examination question? Well, his clothing. Like, he wasn't... Um, like what about the freaking blood, right? All right, so where's the blood? Where's the blood? Like, if you're turning somebody around and he's saying that his brains were out and he's trying to see if there's a pulse, like... Where's the blood? <laughs> Where is the blood? And one thing that I did not hear during the entirety of the direct examination mm-hmm. is him resolving in my mind what happened with the blood. It's just glossed over, glossed over. In a bench trial, you know what that means in a bench trial? It means that you're freaking guilty. You're going to lose. In oh, a yeah. jury trial, I'm not so sure. They might gloss over it themselves. But um, let's continue. Back and forth. I mean, I went back and forth between them. I know. I know I did. I'd, I'd like to play Doug. Um, uh, the Colleton County portion of the 911 call, the, which is in evidence as Defendant's Exhibit Number Nine. And, and Doug, this is the long version, the, the, the first clip, and. All right, so they're going to go over the 911 call. There wasn't a whole lot there that was disputed. I mean, the 911 call, there was some uh, speculation as he, at one point, he at random just says here as if somebody might have been there and he explains that. I'm not sure that that's all that um, important uh, piece of evidence. But um, 
in order to get through all of these clips, let's uh, let's gloss over that one. Um, the next clip he talks about here is him trying to explain the absence of the clothes, and I want you to tell me what you think about his explanation. And they're gonna they're gonna talk about. Um, you recall that tree that he was fiddling around with? It was kind of like slumped over, um, and it was uh, Paul was videotaping him as a Snapchat, and he's wearing like this green polo shirt and beige pants. He's talking about these clothes. And let, let's hear his explanation. When you changed out of those clothes, I was. And um, did you have a follow-up? Did you have a conversation after that meeting with Sled with Blanca about what you were wearing that day? Absolutely. And what was the purpose of the conversation with Blanca? Well, they made an issue about that in that meeting. And I asked Blanca about those clothes that, that I had on earlier that day. Do you ask her specifically about the blue shirt? I asked her specifically about all the clothes. Okay. I, what I asked Blanca about specifically was, did she remember getting my clothes after she came back? Um, when, she, when she came back to Moselle, did she remember getting my clothes? It's specifically what I asked her. I see. And, and why were you asking her those questions? Because on August the 11th, they had made an issue about me wearing, still wearing those clothes, not having changed clothes when I was in that Snapchat video. So that's why I went to Blanca. Did they ever ask you on August the 11th whether, um, I mean, they ask you for those clothes? Can you produce the clothes? Did they ask you that? No, they didn't. Have they ever asked you for those clothes? No. As far as my understanding goes, my clothes were never an issue in this case until y'all figured out, as my lawyers figured out, that there was no blood spatter on me. Sir? Is that objection, Your Honor? 401, 402, and beyond uh, in speculation. Mr. Griffin. It's a matter of public record. It's a matter of public record. What is? Um, the issues with the shirt and the blood test. It's a matter of public record. Filed in this case, yes, sir. The objection is overruled. I'm well aware that my clothes never became an issue in this case until my lawyers proved that this blood spatter that they said I had on my shirt for my wife and my son was a lie and that there was no blood on my shirt. And once they filed the documents and they proved that that was a lie, all of a sudden the clothes I was wearing back on that day became an issue. So then where are the clothes? Mm -hmm. And that's in the weeks. <laughs> leading up to this trial. Now, Alec, after the 
Maggie and Paul were murdered on June 7th and 8th. Where did you stay and where did you keep clothes? I say that again, please. Where were you staying overnight? Well, let me ask you this. Did you ever spend another night at Moselle after June 7th? I never spent another night at Moselle. Why not? It's haunted. <laughs> Could have. Didn't want to. Okay. Where were you staying? And we talked about the the days and weeks, the week afterwards, but where were you staying? When you got back from the lake, Kiwi and um, Greenville. I stayed. All right, so when I got back from Greenville, so yes. that would be the, all right, be, um, so the first week until my dad's funeral, then, all right, so that'd be the second week. All right, so after we, I know Bus and I, um, I stayed with Grandma and Papa T as much as I could. Um, you know, um, I stayed with, um, I, st I stayed with my brother Randy a lot. Um, I stayed with my brother John a lot. Um, Bus and I stayed at Edisto a little bit. But at the beginning, I stayed with, I really stayed with either my brother Randy and his wife Christy, or I stayed with my brother um, John and his wife Lizzie. And basically, at that time, Buster was doing, excuse me, Buster was, Buster was, Buster worked for Wild Wing at that time, and they had been so kind to him and gave him, he was, they let him be off just for, just ridiculous amount of time they were so good to him so he stayed with me when he had to go back to work he would stay at my all right so he's getting into something else about yeah <laughs> brother john and lizzie's because it doesn't have anything to do with the clothes but so he doesn't give an explanation other than hey nobody asked me about it so but what i didn't hear was an explanation of so where is the clothes mm -hmm. and you know i don't know I don't know. Most people, when they have clothes like that, they don't just go missing. They're they're stuck in a closet somewhere. Or, you know, if you, if you want to go find them and recover them, it's not that difficult. Most people keep track of, you don't even have to keep track. They're just there somewhere. I don't know. Stuff that I bought like three, four, five, ten years ago is probably still in my closet somewhere because I didn't throw it away. And, and so why is that specific clothes the only clothes missing or unaccounted for? It doesn't matter about when they wanted to make an issue. Um, he didn't know that they had discovered the, and you know what, you know what else? He's lying right here on the stand. His lawyers didn't tell him jack shit about those clothes. He didn't learn about the, the clothes were an issue until he was in front of the interrogator in that interrogation room um, with uh, that officer when he was uh, being interrogated. He didn't know in, until that point that the clothes were an issue. It wasn't from his attorney's. And so I'm unsatisfied with that explanation. Yeah. That doesn't explain anything for me. If, if anything, it makes it worse. Um, um, 
there's more clips. Let's see. Uh, so that was the stuff about the clothes. Um, oh, he's talking about his, his, uh, you know, let's skip to the cousin Eddie stuff where he's talking about the, yes, the insurance. That. That's what everybody wants to hear about, right? So, it, um, let, let's hear what he has to say about that. Cousin Eddie, this is about the, uh, insurance fraud scheme for the proceeds that were supposed to go to Buster. And this is his, uh, accounting of it. Uh, let's give it a listen. On some level, yes, sir. I was successful. Uh-oh. So, yes. And and did you reach out to Blanca to get your insurance information? I did. And, and for what purpose? Um, because I was going to use my insurance at uh, detox and rehab to help pay for it. And and what would what was your immediate plans um, after I mean, for the day after you met with Chris Wilson? Did you have plans to do anything? Have any other meetings um, on that Saturday? I, I wanted to go and meet with Corey Fleming, who was another lawyer who was affected by the things I did. Okay. And did you? And a good friend. Did you go meet with Corey Fleming? No. What'd you, what'd you do instead? I'd given my... When, when I gave my pills to my brother, Randy, and Danny, I, I think I gave them to Randy, but I'd taken... I took a, I took a lot of pills because I knew I wasn't going to be taking anymore. So um, Randy had my pills. I had to get some from him the night before, but I only got a small amount. Um... I, I could tell, you know, I, I wasn't taking anything near like what I had been taking. So I knew it was coming. Um, and I called someone to bring me more pills. And um, before I, I believe before I met with Chris Wilson. And did you, you meet this, did the person you called bring you more pills? Um, you know, I don't know if he brought me more pills or not because by the time I met with him, um, after meeting with Chris and after, you know, the starting of the withdrawals, I changed my plans. And, w and what, what was the change in plans? not to get pills from him anymore. And instead, I asked him to shoot me. Did you ask him to shoot you as a sympathy ploy? Or did you want... Objection leading. Ploy? Yes, sir. Why no. did you ask him to shoot you? What was, what was the end goal in your, that you wanted to accomplish? I meant for him to shoot me so I'd be gone. And who was this? Who did you ask to do this? Eddie Smith. And did he, in fact, shoot you? He did. And where, 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 where was that located? Not your gunshot, but where were you shot in Hampton or Colleton County? Where, where, where were you? It's Hampton County. It's, um, it's, it's right on the border of Sockahatchee Road. It runs right along the Sockahatchee River. Um, 
why did you want to be gone? I mean, I knew all this was coming to a head. I knew how humiliating it was going to be for my son. Um, I mean, I'd been through so much. At the time, in the bad place that I was, it seemed like the better thing to do. I don't think that way now, thankfully, but right. I did at the time. Did you have life insurance on you? Oh, yeah. I had a lot of life insurance. And who was the beneficiary? Um, Maggie was the beneficiary. How much life insurance did you have? I had $12 million. I had a $4 million policy and, a 12 million, and an $8 million policy, a total of twelve. Did you ever have any life insurance on Maggie? No, never. Did you ever have any life insurance on Paul? No. Okay, so that's his ex explanation. Um, I'm not sure how many points he scored with that. And again, it's getting down this dark rabbit hole of the financial insurance mm -hmm. fraud stuff. And the question is, did he murder Paul and Maggie? They kind of got over a lot of that stuff. And a lot of this stuff, too, is in response to the prosecution, which has kind of been our point going back a couple of weeks. I mean, you're opening the door to all of this irrelevant evidence. And um, the more that he gets to talk about this kind of stuff, the more that the jury kind of gets used to him and it opens the door for reasonable doubt in places that you wouldn't expect. And this is just another one of those places. He's clearly a, a troubled guy, at the end of his tether, and he's trying to off himself. And aside from the other stuff that we speculated, you know, there there is not a logical motive in the case. Even if you say that, okay, murder-suicide kind of takes care of itself, but he didn't commit suicide, so he murdered his wife and kid because he's in financial trouble, and he's trying to get his son busted $12 million while still trying to kill himself. There's not a logical tie-in to that. And so the more he has to talk about all of this stuff— the more it leaves room for reasonable doubt in this case when push comes to shove and the jury's deliberating his guilt or his innocence. So, oh, I don't I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what to make of all of it. Um, I didn't kill Maggie and Paul. Okay. So let's get into some of the cross-examination stuff um, in this case because that was really what we've all been waiting for, right? Um. Cross-examination was like an hour, 51 minutes long. Um, we're going to just listen to a couple of snippets. Let's get a, just a feel for the tenor of, of it. Uh, there, there, there's two things. You, you referring to the civil case when you say... All right. So just to, to paint the scene, this is uh, Creighton Waters. He is calling out Alex Murdoch's for using the name, the nickname Pawpaw, referring to Paul Murdoch, mm -hmm. his son. Um, and he's questioning about it. And you're going to hear the, this little terse exchange between Alex and Mr. Waters. Let's take a listen. Okay, that's Rogan Gibson. Okay. And this jury, of course, has heard multiple recorded statements of you during the course of this. Did you ever refer to Paul as Paul Paul during that? I don't know. 
you know, do you recall? <laughs> How I referred. He literally said on the stand earlier today that, um, oh, I always just call him Paul. That's just what we call him. Now he just says, did you ever refer to something before this case? Well, I don't know. <laughs> so, oh, God. I don't know, but that's what the prosecutor's getting at. But, hey. I can say Paul if you prefer that. No, I, I, you can call him whatever you want. I'm just asking you if you ever called him that during the course of that entire investigation. Or is that also the first time today, at least publicly? Is today the first time I've called my son Paul, Paul, Paul? No, sir, that is not correct. Have you ever called him that on all the recorded statements that this jury has heard? I don't know. You ever called Rogan Roro? I all called him Rogan. recorded statements. <laughs> all the time. In the recorded statements, did you ever call him that? I don't know. I mean, I called him Rogan also, so I, I don't know. But I, I, I'm happy to call him Rogan, and I'm happy to call Paul, Paul. I don't think that's the question, Alex. That's not what he's getting at. Let's talk about, and I'll be, I'll be specific, with the boat race, wreck criminal case and the boat wreck civil case, okay? Is yes, that sir. fair? Yes, sir. All right. And we've talked a little bit about your badge. Did you have your badge with you on the night of the boat wreck? I think they're talking about his uh, prosecutor's on badge. On the night of the boat wreck, did I have it with me? Uh, yeah. When? Night of the boat wreck. Tell this jury about. All right, so that was that clip. That was a short clip. There's this. Um, There's two things. You you referring to the civil case when you say the boat case. All right, sir. Um, this was kind of the highlight today where Alex kind of starts snapping at the prosecutor. They had, you know, an hour 51 minutes of cross-examination. Um, but he is, uh, and again, unfortunately for the prosecution, this whole exchange, I mean, he got in some good points there about, so all of a sudden it's Paul, Paul, huh? Well, was, where was all of that during the investigation? I thought he was Paul. And all of a sudden you're in front of a jury. And, which was a great point. And now, you know, they continue to press him about the financial crimes. And, you know, unfortunately for the prosecution, that really doesn't speak to the murders. It speaks to the financial crimes. And they are going to do that trial. But, you know, um, let's take a listen. Eight hundred thousand dollars. Eight hundred thousand dollars. Yes, sir. All right. Excuse me. Yes, sir. All right. And so that would be. Eight hundred thousand dollars in fees that would get attributed to you. That has nothing to do with the money that you subsequently stole from that teammate. Correct. The eight hundred thousand is different from money that I stole. Yes, that's correct. All right. So you got eight hundred thousand dollars attributed to you with the firm, but that was not enough. You also stole money from that teenager. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. When you did that, did you sit down with her, much as you sat down with this jury, and explain to her what was going on while you were stealing her money? Uh, I, that would be the normal process, but I, I certainly don't remember specifically doing that. That would be the normal process, correct? That would be. It, it may be a little different with a teenager, but certainly, I mean. You would sit down with them across the table and go through these documents, correct? If... if that that would not be abnormal, yes, sir. All right, and then you would try. You would explain to them what was going on and how they were getting everything they were entitled to, correct? If I was the one doing it, yes, sir. And you would look them in the eye while you did that, correct? 
it wouldn't be unusual for me to look them in the eye. While you were doing some fast talking to a teenager, correct? <laughs> I certainly was not telling her the truth. I don't know if I was talking fast or slow, but I wasn't telling the truth. All right. Well, you ultimately convinced her that there was nothing amiss here, right, while you were stealing her money, correct? I don't know if I convinced her that nothing was amiss or I misled her, but I admit candidly in all of these cases, Mr. Waters, that I took money that was not mine and I shouldn't have done it. I hate the fact that I did it. I'm embarrassed by it. I'm embarrassed for my son. I'm embarrassed for my family. And I don't dispute that I did it. I, I understand that. And but you so, understand that we have to ask about these things because we've heard about it in a very academic paperwork manner. But every single one of these, you had to sit down and look somebody in the eye and convince them that you were on their side when you were not. Correct? That's what you did in every single one of these. I mean, every time. Answer my question, yes or no, and then you can explain. I'll let you explain all day long. Well, I mean, no, sir, that may or may not be true. Okay. And, Mr. Waters, just to try to get through this quicker, I admit. I know you want to get through it quicker, but we're not. So <laughs> answer the question, please. <laughs> what, 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 I, what I admit is that I misled them, I did wrong, and that I stole their money. Now, this, this is something. What's the date on that one? I'll bring it back to you. Well, you can tell me. I, I trust you to tell me accurately. Uh, well, you know, it's kind of funny. It doesn't have the date on it, but uh, I'll let you take a look at it. I, I'm just looking at the date of the check. So that's mm -hmm. December 20th, so uh, 2011. So that gives us a ballpark. So that's 12 years ago. For me to sit here and tell you specifically that I remember sitting down and talking with Natasha Thomas, I, I can't tell you that. But what I can tell you, and mm -hmm. I can tell you that I didn't do right by Natasha Thomas. I took money from Natasha Thomas that didn't belong to me, and I was wrong for doing that. Okay. And I admit that. I know. That's the first time in all of this presentation that um, the lawyer and Alex came out. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? Like, he's literally... That, that 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 little exchange right there, that little we get this done quicker, and you know, um, he had he had that typical lawyer response where I'm not showing emotion. Now we're we're just you know, exchanging oh, yeah. haymakers. You know, that's the first time where he set aside this little uh, emotional charade that he's trying to pull on, and kudos on the prosecutor because he he's hitting it on the head. I mean, so look, every single time he committed all of these financial crimes. You had to convince somebody that you were telling them the truth and that you misled them and that you're a liar, mm -hmm. right? And you're saying, well, I don't want to necessarily say he's dancing around. I know you want to get done, done yeah. through with it quicker, and yeah, but I need to ask you about it. Um, <laughs> that's when you start seeing the, the attorney and Alex start to come out. Fascinating exchange. Mm -hmm. Let's continue. Exactly. Mr. Murdoch, but you would like for it just to be as simple as that, just to say, yes, ladies and gentlemen, I stole money and have that be the end of it. But in every single one of these cases, to the comment, Your Honor. you would like to just admit that and make this quick, correct? Isn't that what you said? Isn't that what you implied? No, sir, Mr. Waters. You have charged me with murdering my wife and my son. And I have sat here for all these weeks listening to all this financial stuff that I did wrong, that I'm embarrassed by. 
I'm happy to talk to you about as much of that as you want to talk about. I'm required to that. talk about it as much as you want to talk about it. But the fact is, is I cannot specifically remember sitting down. The details that you're asking me for, I, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is that in all these financial situations, I stole money that was not my money. I misled people that I shouldn't have misled, and I did wrong. Imani, hey, you know what this sounds like? This sounds like if what? you were in a deposition that went bad, mm-hmm. and the argues are the, the the attorneys are arguing in the deposition room, but the jury's there to listen. That's what we're listening <laughs> to right now. We're listening to a deposition gone wrong, but the jury's there, so they can't. Everybody's temper isn't checked, but. If this was an actual deposition, I promise you there would be oh. insults and all kinds of curse words flying back and forth between both attorneys. Mm-hmm. Let's continue. I can tell you that. And I may be able to tell you specifically in some instances what I did or didn't do. All right. Well, good. Well, we'll do that. But the point that I'm asking you is it's, it's not as just as simple as some paperwork. You had to sit down and deal with these people and convince them that you were telling them the truth in order to steal this money, correct? That, that may not be true because in some situations, I, I may not have had to do that. They may, they may have just trusted me to do it. Okay. So that's my point is I misled them. There's no question about that. But did I sit down in each particular instance and like, like you're breaking it down step by step? I can't say that. I can say I did wrong, I stole money that wasn't mine, and I shouldn't have done it. Now, in normal circumstances in a cross-examination, like you saw with uh, Dick Hart-Putlian on cross-exam a couple times, where he's trying to limit that investigator to yes or no answers, um, Dick doesn't really give a shit about what Alex is saying right now because he's, he's already hammered home the point, and every word that comes out of Alex's mouth at this point is hammering home that he's deceitful, he's manipulative, that he's... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, stole these people's money, that he's dishonest, that he's not to be trusted. And so the more that Alex talks, the more he's losing points right here with the jury. Um, let's carry on. All right. And it was terrible what I did. All right, well, let's look at stage 330. <clears throat> this is uh, Arthur Badger and the EPS case, correct? That's correct. All right. You remember what the total recovery was in that particular case? There were multiple plaintiffs. Let me ask you that first. There were multiple plaintiffs in that case, correct? That's correct. And do you remember what the total recovery was in that case? Not exactly, but I mean, I know generally. All right. Was it $12 million? Would you disagree with that? Was it $12 million? I mean, if you tell me it was $12 million, then I believe you, but I thought it was a little bit more than that. All right. And if uh, ultimately, if you have multiple plaintiffs, how do you decide, as the plaintiff's lawyer, how does it work out that amounts of that total recovery get allocated to individual plaintiffs? I mean, different cases are different ways. Um, Is it true that often the defense attorneys, the civil defense attorneys, will ask the plaintiff's attorneys how you want that allocated? Um, s- sometimes, yeah. Sometimes? Sure. Is that what happened in this case? In the Badger case? I can't remember exactly how we came to that. Who was the, uh, the deep pocket in the Badger case? Do you remember? The, uh, the defendant that had the money that you ultimately recovered from, the vast majority. Do you remember? Well, 
it was UPS, and I, I, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was corporate or if there was insurance, but it was certainly UPS was the major defendant. But I believe Arthur Badger was a defendant. I can't remember. I know, I know UPS was. Did you sit down with him and explain this paperwork that you were using to steal his money? I believe I did sit down with Arthur Badger. And managed to convince him that nothing was amiss while at the same time stealing money? I believe I did. And did you allocate millions of dollars to Arthur Badger personally while only telling him that his recovery was going to be around $300,000? I believe that I did, yes, sir. And on this exhibit, 330 sat down and looked him in the eye with all this stuff in, on here and fast-talked him past these figures so that he believed you and left thinking that you had done him right. I would have... I, 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 I believe that I sat down with Arthur Badger, and I know that I misled Arthur Badger, and I'm sure at some point during that conversation that I looked him in the eye. Going back to uh, States 333, <clears throat> you remember Hakeem, Hakeem Pinckney? Do you remember him? I do. What happened to him? Um, he was injured in the same wreck that Natasha Thomas was injured in. Was he badly injured? He was. How badly injured was he? Yes, I mean, he was terribly injured. He became a, um, can't remember what level, but he was a quadriplegic. Do you remember what the uh, total recovery amount was for him? Not off the top of my head, no, sir. All right. Well, let me show you states 333 and see what the total, if you recall, what the total recovery was in that case. It looks like it was $10,245,000. And that was for Hakeem, correct? That's correct. And how much of that was the attorney's fees that would have gone to PMPD that would have been attributable to you? Uh, $4,098,000. $4,000,000 in legal fees that you would have gotten from this settlement, is that correct? $4,098,000, yes, sir. And in the end, that wasn't enough for you, correct? Was that enough for you? Was that enough for me in that case? Yeah. I mean... Was four million, over $4 million in legal fees that you received uh, that would have been attributable to you through the law firm at the end of the year, whatever it worked out to be, but you would have been credited with over $4 million in fees for that. Is that correct? That's correct. And was that enough for you? Was that enough for me? Mm -hmm. Or did you take more oh, no. from... I, 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 I took monies from Hakeem Pinckney that, I, that did not belong to me that I should not have taken. Been rendered a paraplegic? No, sir. He was a quadriplegic, quadriplegic. unfortunately. Thank you for correcting me. Yes, sir. You ultimately take money from his mother, Pamela, as well. I believe that I did.
You remember how much money you took from from a king? No, sir. Not off the top of my head. I do not. If I told you it was over three hundred and seventy thousand dollars, would you agree with that? If, if if that's what the records show, I don't dispute that. Do you remember how much you took from the teenager Natasha Thomas in addition to your legal fees? Not off the top of my head, no, sir. If I told you it was over $350,000, would you agree with that? I don't dispute it. Do you remember how much you took from Arthur Badger? Not off the top of my head, no, sir. If it was over $1.3 million, would you agree with that? I don't dispute it. Around the time that this was going on, did you have some land deals that were going bad, that had gone bad? All right, so what's your main takeaway from all of that, Eliana? Like, what's the overarching theme of the prosecution's cross-examination? I mean, when it comes to... One of my one of the things that I noticed, like you said, it was like he's trying to control the whole uh, questioning or interrogation. Like he's bringing out his attorney side, and he's like avoiding some questions and answering with very political answers. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, he's the persecution is just trying to show that. He can pretty much talk to somebody and be believed that he's right or he's a good person, but when in reality he's not, because he did it already with all these people. Well, the, the entire doing it right now. Yeah, the entire theme of of what the prosecution is trying to get at, which was the reason why uh, the defense did not want him to testify, I suspect. Mm-hmm was because all they're going to do is just go there and, and say how you're a liar this and liar that, and you lied then, and you're yeah. lying now, and you're not to be believed, and they're going to hammer that home, um, which they mm-hmm. did pretty effectively in the first part of that video that we watched, and, you know, that was a small portion of mm-hmm. it. But then he started going on, and you stole $1.1 million from her and 380000 from this other person. The jury mm-hmm. has already heard, that, heard all of that. They get it. He stole money. Mm-hmm. Um, so they might have missed an opportunity there to just, you know, um, not go so much into the the finer points of the financial uh, information Mm -hmm. um, and focus so much harder on the hard questions. So, which I think the point there was, he's such a liar. It doesn't matter what I ask him. He's going to lie. If Mm -hmm. I ask him why he didn't have a blood, have blood on it, he's going to give me some bullshit answer. If I ask him about where the clothes were, he's going to give me some bullshit answer. And so, you know, just know that he's a liar. Whatever came out of his mouth today is in his best interest, and he's lying about stuff now, mm-hmm. and he's trying to make it look like he's trustworthy, while at the same time admitting to you that he's been a liar for the last couple of years regarding the details of this case, and he's only come clean when presented irrefutable evidence to the contrary of his story. Um, he's been able and had the opportunity to sit through all of this evidence and manipulate his story to fit the narrative of the evidence that came out at trial. And now he's trying to pull a fast one over these 12 jurors to get him to believe that he didn't murder his wife and son. That's the theme, right? Isn't that the theme? 
And so yeah. Yeah. those are the questions that you wanted him to answer, but why? He's just going to lie. He's just going to lie. So exactly. an hour and 51 minutes of cross-examination, that was, you know, the, you know, the, the tersest exchange that they had. Um, the rest of it was just, you know, more mundane details about this and that. Um, but you're not going to get any real answers out of Alex Murdoch from the prosecution's perspective, from the defense's perspective. They wanted to humanize him in a way that, oh, it's Paul Paul. It's not Paul. But, oh, during the entire investigation, it was Paul, wasn't it? And so, oh, it's uh, at the conclusion of cross-examination, and I'm, I'm not sure if uh, they're done with um, Murdoch's testimony or not, I do know that the defense had hinted at resting tomorrow at some point. So we may be into jury deliberations as early as Monday. I suspect if the defense rests, they're going to probably resume with cross-examinations on Monday as opposed to doing it right there and then, Um, which would be my preference if I was on either side. I want a weekend to prepare. Maybe I don't. Let's just do it so I don't have to prepare for the whole weekend. Oh, you know that feeling like when you finally rest your case and you're done with closing arguments and like your whole brain just has been like in this vice grip for the the entire time and now the trial is over and yeah. you finally get that. Oh, I don't think I would want the weekend prepare. I changed my mind. Let's just do the closing arguments tomorrow. That's what <laughs> I would want to do. Just get this over with. I'm ready. What more am I possibly going to learn about this case? And so... Mm-hmm. I don't know. You're on the jury right now, Liana. Is there reasonable doubt such that you could acquit Mr. Alex Murdoch of the, these murders? If I wasn't the jury, I would say no. But I mean, I'm not your typical juror, I guess. <laughs> well, where are you going to say to to Aunt Burgett that thinks he's just a good Christian boy that loves his son and is sad at the fact that now nah, he's gone? He's lying through his teeth. That you could tell that there's no way that if he did all this bad things in the past, that all of a sudden now he's telling the truth. Like the only, like you said, the only person will be saying that he's telling the truth now is to get away with it, like he has done all these years. And like everything else, like the evidence, it just doesn't match. And the fact that he shed a couple of tears is not an explanation to what all the other things that don't make sense so yeah i mean that's that's probably gonna be be, me being nice to that aunt (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty much it well in a trial where credibility is everything alex murdoch has Mm -hmm. none Mm -hmm. and you're trying to convince me of the reasonable doubt that it was anybody other than you yet all of the reasons that would point towards reasonable doubt came out of the mouth of a liar. That seems to be the prosecution's theory of the case, and it's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. Mm-hmm. Um, you could critique whether or not they spent so much, you know, too much time on the financial evidence or not, or, you know, obviously it very clearly was not a perfect trial. I, I think it took them a little while to hit their stride. Um, the last week of trial of their presentation of the case, I think they, they, they were dialed in as to what they were trying to do. Um, with this cross-examination, I think that Creighton Waters um, was spot on with what his focus should have been in terms of focusing on Alex is a shyster. And um, 
he spent his entire life manipulating and uh, deceiving innocent folks. And you 12 jurors are no different. When it serves Mr. Murdoch's purposes, uh, nothing out of his mouth should be trusted. And this man is on trial for the rest of his life, literally to, to, to decide whether or not he's going to spend the remainder of his years in a prison cell or on, you know, whatever uh, reservation is going to take him after every, the government repossesses his entire estate as a consequence for his financial crimes. So, um, interesting points. Alex turned into an attorney there on the stand. It turned into a uh, mm-hmm. um, a uh, hotly contested deposition at some points. I think the defense did the best that they could under the circumstances. <sighs> But they were unable ultimately to uh, resolve the main questions, the strongest evidence that the prosecutor had. Their their strongest refutation of the cell phone video was, oh, yeah, my client lied because he was on drugs. That was the best they could do. And to me, that's unsatisfactory. They never resolved the blood. They didn't resolve the missing clothes. And matter of fact, I think and I I wonder if the prosecution is going to key in on the fact that Alex just said he didn't even know that the clothes were an issue until um, his lawyers pointed it out to him when very clearly they got him interrogated on interrogation video being confronted with the fact that, oh, there's this other video that exists that has you um, wearing different clothes. (laughs) I wonder if they're going to key in on that evidence. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. is this the kind of case uh, that could result in an acquittal? Um, Not in my mind. Not acquittal. I can see a hung jury. But I think that right now it's probably just in my experience in trials of a similar nature. um, It's probably nine to three in favor of uh, in favor of guilty. And there's these three Mm -hmm. stragglers that are going to, you know, harp on the fact that, you know, there's not enough direct evidence or any direct evidence. So that's challenging and frustrating for, you know, the prosecution, but it's the reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you got a few at Aunt, Aunt Burgett's on the jury, then um, this is going to be a hung jury. So as of today, February 23rd, the evening of February 23rd, 5.55 p.m. Pacific time, mm-hmm. I'm going to predict that this is either a guilty verdict or a hung jury, and we can't have both. I do not see not guilty anywhere in the cards for Mr. Murdoch for a myriad of different reasons um, that we've gone over um, over the last cut. You know, how long have we been doing this show? We are uh, like uh, an hour 45 minutes in at this point. Yeah, almost two hours. <laughs> yeah, I did warn you it might be a little long today episode 28 (laughs) it was kind of a special occasion i remember the dale brooks case when we were covering that one we did a two-hour show at the conclusion of that case um when the jury had came back with their guilty verdict against mr brooks uh there's been some updates with that guy as a matter of fact he's still doing his uh Mm -hmm. his proper defending himself thing in front of that same (laughs) judge I haven't I haven't uh, been paying too much attention because I've been focused on the Murdoch case and also my career as an attorney. Um, But, you know, um, for what it's worth, 
in my book, uh, Alex Murdoch is guilty. What do you think, Ileana? Mm-hmm. I think yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> is there any argument that you can see that he has that he could maybe persuade a couple of jurors um, and Burgett's based off of what you saw today from his testimony? Not at this point. I think if he would have brought, I don't know, um, like specific people that could have done this, but other than that... Well, he did. He he did say that, well, it's the people that are pissed off about the boat case, or maybe it's the people that are pissed off about the financial cases. That, that That's his explanation. Zeroing in on that's somebody specific, though, is the issue, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. like, okay, well, who? Yeah. Tell me who. Exactly what evidence not. is there anybody yeah. else other than you? Exactly. That would have been, of course, more convincing. Like, I don't know, some sort of DNA, some other people also present there. But no, there's no evidence about that. And just him saying, yeah, I had a lot of enemies. Of course you did. Uh, based on what you've been doing all this time, it's obvious you're going to have a lot of enemies. enemies but... That's not enough. So what you're saying yeah, is, I think, if somebody actually did do it, there might be actual evidence that points towards somebody else. Um, but it was not something. the case. Yeah, it's, it's not looking good for murder. I, I, I hasn't changed my opinion today. Didn't change my opinion mm-hmm. about his guilt or his innocence. What it did do is mm-hmm. open the door in my mind to the fact that he just might get away um, with what I perceive mm-hmm. to be. I think he's guilty. But it doesn't matter what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that the door is open for the defense to pull this off. They just might. They just might. Mm-hmm. And you know, if if that happens, what Creighton Water is going to sound like? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna... <laughs> oh, just like that. Oh, that's exactly the noise that he's going to make <laughs> in the privacy. <laughs> How in the hell did I? Oh, I'm not going to replicate that voice. It speaks for itself. No, please. <laughs> well, everybody, uh, that's all I have for episode 28 of the Tilted Lawyer podcast. If you've been following along with us for the entire hour and 45 minutes, I sincerely thank you um, in our coverage of this case. It's been, it hasn't been exactly a pleasure. I can't say that. It's been a lot of work to try to keep mm-hmm. up with everything that's been going on because it's, it's like taking on a, you know, in the midst of all of our other cases. But I enjoy doing it. And Ileana has, has done her best to to be here and be a part of all of this. And I sincerely thank you, Ileana, for joining us, even if it's remotely. That's good enough. It's cold out there. You don't need to be driving anywhere. You know, we're, yeah, you're just stay safe and warm in your house. And, you know, you got other yeah. things to worry about. Um, but for everybody, for everybody that's been listening, for everybody that participated, I sincerely thank you. Uh, We will be back again next week uh, for episode 29 of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, where I suspect we're going to be dissecting a verdict. I want that to be the case. I really want to be done with Alex Murdoch at this point. (laughs) I think I'm all talked out with Alex Murdoch, Um, but we'll see how we'll see what happens. Hopefully this doesn't prolong uh, past uh, next week. Um, Other than that, um, I love you all. And uh, keep your doors locked and keep your family members close. And um, you never know what's going to happen out there in this crazy world. Um, And in the meantime, we will see you all again next week. Um, If something happens crazy, like we get a crazy 
early verdict, like earlier, maybe we'll go live and, and do like an emergency broadcast of the Tilted Lawyer <laughs> broadcast, and I'll get Ileon on the phone, and then we'll uh, we'll discuss. But other than that, plan on us recording on a regularly scheduled dates of uh, Thursday afternoons, and um, we will see you all then. And uh, we thank you, and bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye.